Hello and welcome to the latest in this series of Classics podcasts from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and recently I visited Bristol University to interview my guest on today's programme, Richard Buxton. Richard is Professor of Greek Language and Literature there, and the author of Interalia, Imaginary Greece, The Complete World of Greek Mythology, and most recently, Forms of Astonishment. This new book focuses on one of the most remarkable and memorable aspects of Greek myth, metamorphosis, be it gods transformed into creatures, clouds or showers of golden coins, very often with sex as the motive, or mortals translated into plants, animals or birds. Think of Acteon turned into a stag as a punishment and ripped apart by his own hounds, Narcissus turned into the eponymous flower, Daphne becoming a laurel tree. In exploring the theme of metamorphosis before Ovid, our usual touchstone in the area, Buxton shows how it permeated a wide variety of contexts, be it tragedy, comedy or vase painting, and critically investigates how transformation operated within these different contexts. How would the Greeks themselves have interpreted miraculous transformations, these forms of astonishment that give the book its title? And how did traditions, modes of representation change over the period he reviews, which extends well into the post-Ovidian world, ending as he does with the poet Nonos in the 5th century AD? And of course, as we discuss in the interview, the fascination with shape-shifting continues to this day. It's impossible to imagine the history of the cinema without the prosthetics and now the CGI of transmogrification. I began the interview by asking Richard how he selected Metamorphosis as his theme for the new book. Well, it developed out of the previous book which I'd written, which is called Imaginary Greece. The subtitle of that was The Context of Mythology. And I'd become interested in how myth-telling and myth-hearing is dependent on the, the context in which those myths are narrated or spoken. And a particular group of myths, which are very striking and surprising and indeed astonishing, which is where the, the title of the new book comes from, are stories about amazing transformation. And what I wanted to do was to explore those stories in relation to the idea of context, how looking at the different ways in which myths of change are told, the different contexts in which they're told, could help us to illuminate certain questions about those stories. For example, to what extent were they taken seriously by the original audience? How do they relate to apparently similar stories that we tell about the astonishing change today? One of the things I was fascinated by in the book was the fact that the word metamorphosis in Greek is very rare. So you're pursuing, I suppose, you're pursuing a sort of, of different ways of imagining and rendering this notion of transformation. And they're not always easy to pinpoint, are they? You, you start with Homer and you make it clear that it's not always easy to say exactly what is happening when transformation has occurred. That's right. Well, you're right on both counts. You're right on the fact that I'm not just looking for the development of a word, but for a, of a cluster of ideas. But also, on many of the most interesting cases are those in which it is not possible to say what has happened, or some, some element surrounding the transformation is unclear, or less vague, or less ambiguous. And it's literature, actually, which is very good at doing that. And not only in the ancient world, you find all kinds of questions left unanswered by a Catholic story about metamorph- the metamorphosis of Gregor's answer. Why did it happen? Exactly into what kind of uh, animal or beast or insect was in change. There are many such stories. Shakespeare's Winter's Tale 
which is very ambiguously contradictory, seems to depict it at the end, the transformation of a statue into a woman. But the text is precisely ambiguous. It creates that impression. On the other hand, from the other point of view, we, we know it's a real woman who's been secluded for 16 years. And I, I wanted to explore this in particular, the idea of how a change can be left ambiguous and unresolved and raise all kinds of fascinating questions just because of its uncharity. I mean, you're not just doing complete comparative study, but you do mention other cultures in which transformation myths are common. And you talk about the fact that in, in today's cinema, transformation is still common. So, I mean, would you, would you go as far as to say it's a sort of archetypal form of narrative that, that seems deeply embedded in the human psyche? and that the Greek manifestation is just one particularly interesting and, and complex format. I'm not so keen on archetypes, and I'm not so keen on what's embedded in the psyche. I tend to have an approach which is, if you like, more anthropological, more sociological, and less psychological. I do think, though, that the phenomenon of storytelling about the chronic transformation is incredibly widespread. I wouldn't go further than that in terms of psychology, but I do appreciate the fact that you mentioned cinema and computer, because that was one of, I think, one of the prompts which I had, which led me to go back to the Greek stories. To me, so widespread in cinema and computer is the idea of change, morphing and warping, that we become anaesthetized to the potential shock. If you go to the X-Men or Harry Potter films, Transformation is absolutely everywhere, and by the end of such things, you, you, you take it for granted. And I wanted to look at some storytelling from a time when such change, or the, the equivalent of such change, were not taken for granted. That's when I wanted to ask the question, did those original audiences take them seriously or not? And, and my answer would be yes or no. So that, in some contexts, yes, and in some contexts, no. But clearly, the whole context was quite different from a world which we're more familiar with, in which at the press of a computer button, you pay your ticket for the cinema, you, you put the television on. And not only are those media actually morphing one into the other, it's very difficult to, to think of cinema without computing. So it's, it's, uh, this is a very different world indeed. And our horizons of, of what's normal and what's expected of completely changed in the last 20 years. And of course, the natural world also provides lots of examples of transformation, doesn't it, whether it's insects or, or frogs. So the, the, the natural world surrounding the Greeks would have, would have given genuine, real examples of what might seem quite miraculous transformation. Yes, and, and Aristotle knew that as well as anyone else did. And for us, of course, the idea of metamorphosis is, unless it's connected with geology, metamorphic rocks, it's probably most obviously related to uh, changes in, um, in the butterfly, the emergence of the butterfly, the emergence of the, the fully adult frog, and so forth. Greeks were clearly able to observe such phenomena as well as we are, and scientific approaches to those phenomena are themselves of great interest when uh, Aristotle as he seems to do, focuses on the idea of the permanence of natural kinds. That cuts across the notion that uh, a human could turn into a spider, or the tears of a human could generate a vegetable, 
that the blood of a human could generate a flower. That reminds us that situation of the plurality of Greek beliefs, because we're not dealing with a single pan-Hellenic view about how the world was. When we think about cinematic metamorphosis, it's easy to do with either the genre of horror or science fiction, with science gone out of control. For the Greeks, they were dealing with, with the Numina, they were dealing with the world of, of deities. And so looking at this question really opens up questions about belief and the religious aspects of, of the Greek world. What, what were you particularly interested in pursuing then? Well, it was, it was several things. As you rightly say, metamorphosis has a very important connection with Greek beliefs in divinity. There's virtually no divinity who doesn't, according to one story or another, turn into something else. There are particular divinities which are strongly and regularly associated in that way. Dionysus is one of them, and Zeus is another. But so also a god whom one might imagine are more permanent and fixed in their form, like Apollo. We have a number of stories about Apollo's changes as well. You, you ask about how I wanted to use those stories in relation to Greek belief. The main answer I give to that is in relation to anthropomorphism, the anthropomorphic quality, the, the human-shaped quality of Greek culture for long been an assumption that this is what distinguished the Greeks uh, from other peoples. And I wanted to ask, how far does the extensive storytelling about metamorphosis correspond to that? If a Greek told a story that a god could change into some other form which was non-anthropomorphic, such as lion or water, panther, any, any example of, of that kind of phenomenon, does that mean that to that extent, Greek beliefs in the gods were non-anthropomorphic or less anthropomorphic than we might have thought? And on the whole, the answer I would give to that is no, because we've got many narratives in which a god or a goddess can turn into a whole series of different forms but typically they will revert to or reassume their original form. Now sometimes a text will say, it will not tell us what that original form was, but other times it will be quite clear that that original form was anthropomorphic. It's fascinating what you say about the differences which the visual and the, the, the literary arts manifest because there are things which are easy to convey in, in words which become very, very difficult to, to display pictorially. Can you convey something about what those comparisons reveal? Well, a good example of that would be uh, the many large paintings which we have illustrating stories of the transformation of mortals into non-mortal form as a result of some crisis or catastrophe. Actaeum, for example, being turned into a star as a punishment uh, for seeing a goddess making. Now, the way in which a vase painter would typically do that would be by placing horns onto the head of an otherwise human-looking young man. What's being done is to give a kind of synoptic view of the story, but the story as told in literature, would have a linear structure to it, as opposed to a synoptic one, and it would say, at first, Actaeum was in this form, and later he took on that form. Vast painters have to give you something different. There's another dimension to this which I find equally interesting, which relates to gods rather than 
the humans come through because there are many things, as you well know, which involve at least or another divinity transforming into a form which will be less threatening, less ob- obviously destructive, in order to uh, have sex with a mortal woman. But what I found quite interesting, and I didn't find it emphasized in the scholarship, was the fact that such transformations are represented as either complete or as not yet effective. You don't find a divinity such as Zeus halfway between the two. And I suspect the reason would be that to transform for a divinity is not an elaborate, lengthy, tiring process. It's instantaneous. And if you were to depict a Greek divinity halfway between the two, what you would hone in on was the elaboration of the process, the distance, the difficulty almost between the two. What the artists tend to do, whether my explanation is right or wrong, what they certainly do is to avoid that halfway house in the case of such divinities as Zeus and Apollo and so forth. And it is also the case that that, would, that halfway house would emphasize hybridity and therefore potentially sort of monstrousness and be, be profoundly disturbing to the Greek mentality in a way that showing either of the, the end states would not be. I think that's a really good observation to make. I would just qualify it in this way that some divinities, such as Pan, for example, are inherently and intrinsically hybrid. But they are not the, the deities who I was talking about earlier, the great, the great Olympian, members of the great Olympian pantheon. In a way, their marginality, the places where they, they inhabit, the types of landscape that they inhabit, is enacted by and represented in another way by that visible hybridity. Is that a part of their job description to be hybrid and troubling and, and, and limited? Absolutely. I, I couldn't put it better. That's absolutely right. Yes. And it is hard not to be struck by the fact that for gods, transformation has a lot to do with sex. I mean, is that, is that, is that a crude generalisation or does that contain more than, a, more than a grain of truth in it? It contains, at the very least, 50% of truth. There are other uh, transformational aspects to divinities. And already in the Iliad, uh, you find those where a divinity to spare a mortal, to avoid shocking them or rendering them dumb, will transform themselves down, you might say. It's almost an electrical metaphor, which is which is appropriate. When Hermes confronts characters in the Iliad and he confronts Priam, it is in the form of a young nobleman, as opposed to the god as he might be untransformed. It's a way of mitigating the power of, of a divinity which in its most extreme form is the power which confronts Semele. Because Semele, when she asks to see Zeus in all his glory, is mute, is thunderbolted, is blasted into oblivion. If a divinity therefore wants to confront a mortal, it has to be, if they don't wish to punish them by their very appearance, in a more contained form. So that would be another sort of motive to interact more easily with mortals. And again, perhaps clearly generalizing, for mortals, transformation seems to be either the end point of a moment of crisis or a process of crisis, or else punishment for some, for some crime they, they seem to have committed. Yes, and in both sorts of cases, the mortal would not revert to anything. They would, not, they would never take back their form. They would remain a plant, they would remain a wolf, remain a spider. But for divinity, such transformations are, are impermanent. And 
are therefore reversible as often as the divinity wants to, to do that. And another way of looking at it is that for a divinity to take on a non-anthropomorphic or a form which is not their own is not to diminish the divinity, but for a mortal to change into a plant or into a spider or into a bird, whatever the story may tell us, is a diminution of their humanity. They lose something. But for a divinity to take on an extra form is an addition. It's an add-on. You don't lose the original, but you just gain something. And I think that's an important and pretty uh, comprehensive distinction between the two kinds of intimacy. Maybe to end with, I can, I can ask you to, to say a little bit more about a quote from Robert Darnton that you, you cite in the book. And you, you, you cite him as saying, the way to penetrate alien culture is through those points that seem most opaque. I mean, I can ask you if you think myth fits the bill par excellence in, in that regard as a way of opening up ancient Greek culture. I'm not so sure that I would say that of myth, because myth was so pervasive, it was all around. I don't think, although it could say strange things, I don't think it always did. I think it is, to some extent, part of the landscape. But stories of transformation are a little bit different. One of the reasons why I chose the title Forms of Astonishment was precisely to, to focus not just on forms and form changes, but on the astonishment that went with it. It's clear that, not always, but often, Greeks were absolutely riveted and shocked and amazed by the idea that such things could take place. That was my way in. The Darnton quote doesn't specifically refer to metamorphosis, uh, but it doesn't refer to strange things. And my view of metamorphosis is that it potentially was a very, very strange thing. But not to the same extent always. So what I was saying is it all depends on the context, how right or wrong that quote of Darnton is. Imagine that you were sitting with a friend in the audience of a Greek tragedy. Imagine what that tragedy was, Prometheus Bound. We're not certain it was by Aeschylus, but it may have been by Aeschylus. And one of the things that you saw was a scene in which a young woman comes onto the stage in some way or other in the form of a cow. Now, nothing in that play, and I would suggest nothing in the general assumed audience reaction to that scene, suggests that this was to be felt as ridiculous or absurd or in any way common. It's assumed within the context to be the way things are, just as we might go to a werewolf film today and not, perhaps, fall about laughing. It's part of the context. It's part of the landscape. But now you imagine that one of those two members of the audience turned to his friend and his friend turned into a wolf. Now there would have been something totally remarkable, and it would probably have induced a heart attack in the body of the person who saw it. So my, my take on all of this is really to come back to context, to ask the question what the Greeks would have made of metamorphosis, and how strange it was, is not a question you can answer in the abstract without specifying. And that is why this book, in my view, followed on from my previous book about the concepts of mythology. You can't answer the question, what sense to make of these forms of astonishment, what sense to make of the forms or the astonishment, unless you replace it in the original content. Richard Buxton. Forms of Astonishment, Greek Myths of Metamorphosis, is out now in hardback from Oxford University Press. You'll find more information about the book 
including how to order it, at blackwell.co.uk. If you go to the New Classics microsite, which you can click through to from the Blackwell's homepage, you'll also find lots of other features on the ancient world, including a growing podcast archive. I'll be back next month with more Classics podcasts, so until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.